there is this now kind of uh, tension, right? And what I think can help solve that is not overlapping products, yeah. not competing with it. It's such a niche market. We fit the fittest minds with the chip inside You can link and digitize that Which prior to this was higher than science could ever devise This is a neural interface We're gonna stick it in your face Till it in your brain and interlace There's an arms war on and we're gonna win the race Leave everything in the race, bring the base Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. Now, this is a special edition of DMP Tonight, a recording of a panel at the last body hacking convention this past January. And we're sharing this as a recap of great information that was presented and also as a special reminder because that same team behind Body Hacks also puts on an information security conference called InfoSec Southwest. Now this year, it'll be occurring very soon, April 7th through 9th in Austin, Texas. For more information and tickets, please go to InfoSecSouthwest.com. Now, we look forward to seeing you there at the great talks and panels, Expo Floor, the Lockpick Village, as well as Capture the Flag competition, but also the scavenger hunt, which has led to many lasting memory and, yes, tattoos. But, so again, check them out, because this team sure knows how to put on not only a good party, but also a good convention. And that is definitely InfoSecSouthwest.com. Take a look, get some tickets. It's coming soon, and we hope to see you there. But before we share this, we want to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Things, who delivers cushion gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousThings.com. If you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at DangerousMinds.io and email us at info at dangerousminds.io, and we'll be glad to talk to you about it. Uh, how's it going, everyone? Uh, this, is, uh, this panel is Designing Implantable Tech for Everyone. Uh, we're going to be discussing designing and building implants and testing for safety of these devices. Uh, I'm Jeffrey Tibbetts, and I'm moderating. Uh, this is Amal Grafsta. Amal Grafsta is a founder of Dangerous Things, a company that markets implantable tech such as the Flex NT, and the FlexDF, which are high-performance NFC transponders encased in a flexible biopolymer. Uh, next, we have Ryan O'Shea. Ryan O'Shea is spokesperson for Greenhouse Wetware, a collaborative responsible for projects such as the Circadia, an implantable which collects biomedical data, and the Bottlenose, a wearable which interacts with implanted magnets. And we have Alex Smith, founder of CyberizeMe. CyberizeMe provides products such as a subdermal uh, temperature sensor and the Firefly, an implant which emits light through the skin. All right, well, my first question is why are you involved in biohacking? Hmm. Um, well, me personally, because I was lazy. I, uh, I, I wanted to get rid of my keys, and going through this door constantly was really annoying, and I wanted the door to just know that it was me. Uh, I looked at, like, fingerprint scanners and iris scanners, and it was kind of clunky and still is today, um, and not really well-suited for outdoors. So uh, the expense and everything, I just didn't want to do. So RFID seemed like the best way to go, uh, but trading a key for a card wasn't solving the problem. And uh, I looked at pets, we've been getting this implants for decades, and uh, I was like, yeah, let's do that. Like, it was kind of a no-brainer. And so I did that, and then kind of everybody freaked out and like got death <laughs> threats and craziness. But yeah. yeah. Well, when was that first? That was like 2005. 2005, yeah. okay. I, I think I've always been a transhumanist. I guess I just never knew that vocabulary and that it was an actual 
thing that existed, because I always thought that science and technology would be used to overcome human limitations, just as we've, just as we've been using it for thousands of years already. And I, I knew that this future was coming, and then when I saw things being posted that people were doing this, I, I definitely just dived right into the industry, and I self-identify as a biohacker and a transhumanist now, because I think now that I have the vocabulary to describe that. And that I first found out about it probably around 2013, so I've been in the community for for four years now working away, but I've always had that passion for futurism in science and technology. Excellent. So for me, basically I read too much science fiction as a child, uh, wanted to be a cyborg, and this is the closest thing I could get. I originally started getting other people's implants and then like hit the limit of what was available and I'm like, I want something more, so I had to build it myself. And once you build one thing, it's snowballing and you know, you made, other people want what I was building, so make it available to them too. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, how far do you see these kinds of implants going in the next 30 years? Now, this is, like I was saying, I have some of these, you know, this is kind of an interpretable uh, question. Yeah. You know, by far, I mean, what well, kind of both, uh, how far is it going to encroach into society and how far in terms of being technologically advanced? Yeah, yeah. So 30 years is quite a span. Yeah. Um, I think it'll be ubiquitous. I think um, the current wearables craze, which is starting to die down, uh, I mean, you know, Google's and Samsung's and the you know, companies of, of that era are are going to definitely have these, these uh, you know, human enhancement uh, implants. And so, um, you know, even our phones now, our phones do everything, and, and I got a Samsung that has the uh, pulse oximetry, you know, everything's all right there in the phone, which is like, what? Like, you could even predict that five years ago, right? So, uh, yeah, I think it's just gonna be ubiquitous, and if, if we get these big companies involved, which they're already, you know, starting to study the space, um, we're gonna see some crazy stuff happen. I mean. The idea, Elon Musk is working on neural lace, for example. Uh, he's been working on it for a few years, and now it's made, made public that he is involved in, in its work. And, uh, you know, in 30 years, you know, we're going to have cognitively enhanced networked humans where we have digital neurons interacting with biological neurons, and it's going to be way better uh, and much more high resolution than, you know, what we could even think about today. So, I mean, radically, radically different. Like, the stuff that we're doing... I would argue that the most important work that we're doing as body hackers today is simply preparing society for the major changes that are gonna come. I think we need to be very self-aware, especially at a conference like this where a lot of people who are here are already invested in the industry, they're techno-optimists, but let's be realistic, a lot of the tech we have today is not that all amazing. You know, it'd be of RFIDs and magnets and things like that. But I always compare it to the Wright brothers, right? When they first did their flight at Kitty Hawk, they flew 100 yards, few meters off the ground, and it lasted about 15 seconds. That's not gonna get you anywhere, and especially not get you anywhere safely. But six decades later, we were landing on the moon. And acceleration of technology has just increased since then. So you give 30 years, that's a long time when you consider the fact that you went from playing on the beach to the moon in 60 years. And as was said throughout this conference, I think a few times, predicting the future is very hard and difficult, so I kind of try to avoid that in general but I just wonder what will our landing on the moon moment be? And as you mentioned, it's gonna be ubiquitous. I think that's coming sooner rather than later. And right now, biohacking is kind of that term that describes fringe things, and by the time it reaches the mainstream, it's no longer called biohacking anymore, it's just mainstream. And I think that's where you'll see a lot of this tech go, where things like magnets and RFIDs and subdermal implants to collect medical data like we make at, well, I don't wanna say medical data, they collect <laughs> data like we make at Grindhouse, that's soon gonna catch on completely and it won't be biohacking anymore. And then what the biohackers are doing will be steps beyond that. So. 
So I think like when I think about the future and where we're going to go with this, personally what I find most interesting is figuring out what is going to be the thing that suddenly takes it mainstream. Like it's very niche at the moment. Sure, everyone here probably has implants, or lots of us do, but in the wider community, like you're probably the only person in your suburb who has an implant. There's going to be a point though where something becomes useful enough that suddenly everybody needs it. Like, a cell phone, originally it was like only businessmen and it wasn't super widespread, and then it suddenly became cheap enough and there was enough functionality that everyone had to have one. And although obviously, I'm just guessing here, but personally, I think limited telepathy, so basically the ability to send and receive text messages uh, without interacting with anything physically. My guess, like I have a rough roadmap of what I would need to do to build such a device, and I think, you know, within 10 years we'll be there, and I think that will be the point where suddenly everyone's like, I need that implant. And I think that's where it's going to go mainstream. Hmm. So it sounds like you all were saying that my 30 years is almost too far a stretch. So, uh, Alex, you say 10 years, you think this is? I think it'll be like starting to be widespread in 10 years, yes. Uh, what would your guess be on this? Uh, it depends on what level, right? So <laughs> it's funny because, you know, if you look at something like iPhones, it seems pretty uh, fantastical, right? It's a magical device and everything. But I think it, it may be uh, something more similar to like body piercing. Mm -hmm. It's been around a long time, but it's ubiquitous. It just quietly got to that point where now it's cool to go to your job and not have to take all like, jewelry out. I mean, maybe there's some laggards that are like setting policy, but the the point is, having a tattoo or a piercing is not weird anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just it's everywhere. So uh, if you're talking about um, simple implants that, that are, are of that nature, it, I think it'll be more like piercing and it'll probably be in, in 10, 20 years, you know, because it's a slow thing. But if, if we can come up with something that's like groundbreaking where you have telepathy powers, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, a, it's not just that, but you have, uh, it's not just the, the novelty of being able to like interact with your phone with a thing. I mean, wearables have been doing that forever and they just, they're novelty items. They, get in the, they go in the drawer, right? But if you have some real actual efficiencies uh, being introduced, that's that's going to be a groundbreaker, right? I think it's I think 20 years is probably a good a good point. What do you think, Ryan? Well, I think one of the main things you think about with this is just how much we how far we've came in just a couple of years. And I think all of us on this stage, and especially people here at this conference, have a lot of people speaking here have gotten a lot of media attention over the past couple of years for things they've been doing. And just three years ago, a lot of the media outlets would reach out to us would come at it from an angle of sensationalization and it's taboo and these people are doing these procedures that should be medical and they're, they're crazy and they're gonna kill themselves, was essentially what the angle they came from. And now today there are journalists in the audience that are gonna be writing about this talk and other talks and they're taking an angle of this is the future, these are the people that are building the future and this is what's happening. And that all changed in a few, probably 24 months. And I can't imagine even just two years how mainstream this conference is gonna be, what other ideas we're gonna have coming in and I look forward to that. So I would say the point where people in general society are aware that this is happening and want to get an implant is when they're, if we get the subdermal implants that collect valuable data that are around the size of the RFIDs that are doing now and that simple to inject, I'd say once we get to that point, that's when it'll take over completely because people get piercings all of the time completely for aesthetic purposes. So if you can get something that's that easy and get value of it out of it, why wouldn't you want to do that? So, um, uh, what's your process in terms of developing uh, an implant? Uh, well, it depends on what the goals are, obviously, because what people don't seem to realize, like a lot of times people come and say, can't you just stuff like a, 
like a computer in there, like you know, like full on, like everything. So they don't realize that that you can't. Like a good example is Arduino, right? An Arduino circuit board is a development board. You, it's got all this extra stuff, all these plugs and pins and all this thing. It's huge, it's giant. It's a general development board. But people will buy one and then make a project and and then just use the development board in the project and uh, not really do what you're supposed to do, which is dev it on the board and then make it really small, like a PCB, and like make it purpose-built, right? And when you're dealing with such a small space inside the body and you're, you're dealing with these kind of uh, tricky materials and things, purpose-building uh, means something, right? You can't just make a giant general computing thing. It's not going to be easy to install, make, or, or convince other people to get. So um, the process starts with what's the goal, right? You get a goal, you establish a goal, you design your thing. And there's electronics design, there's software design, there's materials, there's process. And so, uh, yeah, just the, what the guiding light is what are you trying to accomplish with this thing? And uh, there's other aspects like how easy to, is it to install? What's the target market? And so, just like any product, really. Okay, so um, your latest product. Um, uh, well, tell me, what, what, yeah. what product do you... So um, the latest product is VivoKey, okay. which is an uh, implantable Java card platform. And so the goal is to essentially build a bridge between a person's biological identity and their digital identities, like accounts and com communications, encryption, all that stuff. So with that in mind, it was like, okay, we need to you know, make it with this particular type of electronics. We need it to be easily accessible, so it needs to be NSC compliant and all of these things. And that, that just drove the, um, the design. So it needs to be easy to install, so <clears throat> that means something when you're designing antennas and all that kind of stuff, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting implants out there, and a lot of them are not powered. You know, you have things like RFIDs which receive, you know, they only are active when they're communicating with something, um, or magnets which are passive as well. But what we do at Grindhouse, we do powered implants under the skin, which is a whole new territory. There's a few other really interesting people here that are, that are working on things like that. I know Ben here is doing that, and, Rich Lee as well, and it's a whole new landscape to deal with. So what we really want to focus on with our work is iterative design. You don't want to throw 90 features on, on an implant and put it in, and then when something goes wrong, you have no idea what went wrong. So that's why we at Grindhouse started very simple with just subdermal LEDs that shine through the skin and kind of mimic bioluminescence. That device is called North Star, and we really got the idea from it, of it from the body modification community. Um, when we realized that there was a market for something like that, we, that was a perfect in to test out a very simple design to see, make sure everything worked well. And it, the result of that is it did. So now we're completing North Star version two, which will include gesture recognition. And then once we have that proven, we're gonna add back into the physiological data sensors. So it's gonna be iterative design. So when everyone sees this and they see a media post about it and they say, oh, why didn't you make it perfect? Why isn't it amazing already? It's the things take take a little bit of time, but we're definitely working towards that. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, like the very first few steps are very standard with any electronic device. You prototype on a breadboard, then you you know finalize the software, start thinking about what components you're going to have on the like final circuit board, get the PCB done, solder it on, and everything. I think like that's no different from any you know electronic device. I think the more Unique part is the you know coating and testing. After that, there's something which most device builders don't have to worry about. So for me, I would depending upon the device, 
thicker coating type, like glass or silicon or titanium or something, and then you know, do some test coatings, do a bunch of uh, like testing outside the body. Once I'm fairly certain that the device is not going to you know, corrode quickly, then I'll try an implant on myself, leave that in for a month or two, take it out, examine it under a microscope, check for any degradation. Once that's fine, there's no, nothing's gone wrong with it, then I'd start like beta testing it, giving it, to, giving it away to people who understand the risks and understand that it's not you know, widely tested yet. And then if they were also report good results, then making it available like, to the public. So I think like, that's, that's, those steps are what takes a lot more time and requires a lot more sort of skill rather than the general electronics step of the process. Um, so what are the biggest roadblocks for you in developing new uh, implants? Uh, I would say time and money. <laughs> uh, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, really, it's what it comes down to, you know, because it, it's not just I'm experimenting in the garage or whatever. Now it's like, okay, now my family's got to eat, right? So you got to, like, I got to put on my marketing hat and I got to put on my whatever, right? So um, just the, the amount of time that I have to just mess around in the lab is greatly reduced. And that's, <clears throat> that's a roadblock. So <clears throat> it's made me focus and say, yeah, I could do all these other things, but this is my focus. And uh, it's like I try to not be the cat with the shiny object, right? Because uh, that, that, that was the fun part of getting into bio. is like, hey, uh, you know, we could do this. Let's work on this. Squirrel, you know, and then they'll work <laughs> over here. So now it's like, yeah, I'll let other people do that because they're going to figure it out. I need to focus on this and do, be good at this. I think, uh, just to echo that, yeah, I think one of the big issues with this is this, I think a lot of investors see that something like this is the future, but it's so new and there's so many regulatory gray areas that it's very high risk, but very high reward. And I think we just need a bold venture capitalist or investor, maybe someone in this audience, come talk to me, uh, who wants to take the jump to put their weight behind this and really make it mainstream. And with those resources, we could really develop a lot quicker. Uh, but specifically, roadblocks that we face day to day in the lab is, I think, somewhat something that everyone who develops these type of implants deals with is biocompatible coatings that do exactly what we need them to do, that don't add a lot of mass and size to the implants, and also energy. How do you power these things? And there's a lot of great talk in the future about energy harvesting and using heat from the human body or movement of the human body, or we've even Amo implanted a uh, solar panel in his arm. We did a, t a test with that. But we're still working with things like that, and that is the big issue, because really, you can make the technology as small as you want to, if you wanted to. We're talking nanoscale, potentially. But you have to have the humongous battery in there at this point, and that's really the limiting factor. So we need to work on that. Okay. So, like, I mean, obviously, there's all kinds of robots, like the, these guys have mentioned. For me, it's probably like well, time, but also personal skill. Like, I have fields that I'm good in. Like, I can do software and I can do electronics and I can do those things really well. But I'm not a chemist. I'm not an engineer, like a physical engineer. Those things, like, I, you know, it would take me huge amounts of time. So if I was to develop a new biocompatible coating, it would take me years, and it probably wouldn't be great. So, to overcome those roadblocks, I use like proven materials, so certain types of glass, we know they're safe. I don't have to worry about that coating. I can just use it, slap it on a new you know, circuit, to keep coating a new circuit, and that saves a lot of time. If I had to try and develop my own coatings, like, I get Cass, I get you to, like, you do a lot of work in coatings. 
And that's great, because I couldn't do that. And then once you've figured out all the problems, then I can use the coding you have to test it. Yeah, actually, that was one of the things that I was going to jump to, is uh, uh, talking about like the role of the community. You know, because obviously you guys all contribute to community quite a bit, and the con you know the community uh, probably contributes you to to use to some degree. You know, and I wanted to talk about that. I, well, first thing I'll ask though is, what kind of safety testing do you do? Mm. <coughs> so again, that depends on the on the coding and what has have already been done on the material. Um, but then there's process testing, right? So, um, like the gla glass tube is like the dumbest thing to to deal with because it's dead simple, but if you're like how if you're putting the stuff in yourself and then sealing it, how are you sealing it? Are, are you ensuring that the internals are sterile? Because if it ever breaks, do you, are you going to you know introduce some crazy bacteria to somebody? Like, are, is the epoxy you know, like sterile? So, materials right. choosing is good. Then, if it's something like you know you're borrowing heavily from the pet industry because they've got it all figured out, right? That's the glass tube, right? So I basically ensure that the that the factory's got its certifications. And I rely on them. You know, I do like maybe a lot tests. I'll take something out and test that or something. But uh, you know, do a growth medium test, for example, to make sure the sterilization was good and make sure the internals are, are clean. And um, then I just trust that the rest of the lot is to that standard. Right? Um, when it's new materials, that's where you know you have to get creative. <laughs> and I think that's where a lot of good input from the community comes, and a lot of ideas flow back and forth, and try different th methods and and whatnot to, uh, to, to try to test our, validate our theories, right? It's uh, citizen science at its best. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's definitely, what I really wanna get the point across is safety and reliability of these things is very important, especially when us as a community depend on what other people are doing as well. Because if one of us on the stage here, or anyone in the audience, is designing their own implant and something goes wrong, that looks badly on the community as a whole. So we need to hold each other up to this high standard of what we need to do. So as far as safety at Grindhouse, we do our own in-house testing. So we fail so many batteries trying to see how they fail, how do we make sure they fail safely if they do fail. Um, then we just smash our objects. We just do pressure tests and heat tests and cold tests that the human body would never experience. If you would experience any of the things we do our testing with, you would be long dead before this device did anything. Uh, but you need to do that due diligence. And the other part of it is I would recommend that everyone does third-party testing. We do third-party cytotoxicity testing uh, with an outside lab. We just send our devices to them and they send their reports back. And I think you need that outside set of eyes to double-check your work and make sure you're not missing anything. And that's very important. Yeah, so, I mean, different materials, different devices need different tests. But I'll just pick an example of like, some of the stuff that I build. So, obviously, some stuff can be outsourced, um, but some of the chips I have are uh, very specialized, very unique. The, I can't find anyone in the world who will do the, um, like, do the coatings for me. So I actually build those chips myself in my lab. And so a test I've developed, for, you know, as an example, is we use a you know, propane torch to seal the glass tubes, but it's very hard to tell 100% whether it's sealed or whether there's a tiny hole. So an example test that I do on them is I heat up the tube, and that makes the air inside expand as it gets hotter. Then I chuck it in cold water. If, the, if there's a hole, then some of the air will have escaped, and as it cools down, it will suck water into the tube. If there's water inside the tube, then you know it's not good, and you can throw it out. If there's no water, then you know that it's totally sealed, because otherwise the you know, low pressure would have drawn water into the tube. So that's like an example safety test that I can do uh, to verify that a tube is completely intact and there are no holes, and so it won't, uh, there's no way that the body can interact with the internal 
electronics. It's totally protected. Excellent. And do you do cleaning on them afterward? Right, obviously. Yeah, yeah. That's the, after they're closed, that's the first test to make sure they're closed. Then you want to like, clean the glass um, yeah. and then sterilize it and stuff afterwards. But it's just like one step sure, in sure. the testing process. I, I've seen um, just the, uh, I would suggest map gas instead of propane. Okay. Uh, just because map gas doesn't have the um, same hydrocarbon output, when, like unburned. Right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't dope the glass with nasty stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Laser sealing is the best, but you don't have a 3,000. You know, right. I mean, yeah, if I had money to jump. buy, like, you know, <coughs> massive, you know, yeah, yeah. lasers and stuff, then yeah. sure, why wouldn't I want to play with that? <laughs> 3,000 amp uh, power supply, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so uh, what kind of innovation would you like to see from the biohack community using or regarding your product? So I'm going to expand on this kind of what we were saying. Like, okay, so the panel is discussing plants for everyone. That's what it's, it's titled as. But, you know, it's a, it's a given that the biohack community represents a good portion of business um, and definitely at least, the, at the very least, the, a loud voice, uh, you know, of uh, uh, supporting or promoting your products and, and where you're going with it. And, you know, okay, so it's kind of a two-part question. Like, what, what would you like to see coming out of the community and, like, how could the community help you? Uh, with what you're doing. Mm. Um, hmm. That's uh, inter interesting. Uh, I think probably the, the community is already doing a ton of stuff. That's that's the great part. Um, there, there's a, a lot of projects involved, people working on different things. I think where some of the things that are not so beneficial is when there's just a lot of uh, non-scientific uh, approaches to, to testing, a lot of noise, right? Yeah. So cl clean it up, right? Let's let's get a let's get an actual scientific method uh, and try to apply that as a, a to to become more responsible citizen scientists. I think that's probably uh, number one. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I think we're doing a lot of interesting things right now in this the subdermal space, just going under the skin. But what I'd like to see is us expand beyond that. Let's interact with the nervous system. Let's start working with. The, the human organs, and eventually we're going to get to the brain. That's the holy grail, right? That's where you want to directly interface with and maybe recreate on a different substrate altogether. And it's going to take a long time to get to that point. But what I would like to see is people who are working in the medical device industry kind of talk to us a little bit more. Cochlear implants are amazing things, but they are rehabilitative in the fact that they want to bring people up to a baseline of normal human, and I put that in, in quotes there. What we want to do is extend beyond that and cochlear implants, of course, could be used to do that if you hack them in the right way. They could get audio information that's below or above the human range of hearing and map that to a different sound so you could hear that as well. But that's something that's not really being happened a lot. And I would love to see people that are in that industry, let's talk more, let's collaborate, let's communicate and really build amazing things together. So, like, I can't, like, complain about this because I do it myself, but I think a lot of people in the community work on their own project, like by themselves, uh, for a long time, slowly improving and working on it. And I think if people formed groups to work on stuff, we could probably progress a lot faster. So if everyone like spent six months working on, you know, Rich's project, and then we did six months on someone else's project, we'd probably make a lot more progress than everyone working on their own thing for two years. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can't, you know, say that I don't do this because I work on my stuff by myself as well. So I'm just as bad as everyone else, but I think we could progress a lot faster if we sort of went about this in more intelligent ways. So just collaboration overall. Yeah. So like dedicated teams working on like a device instead of just like one person doing one device and another person doing another device. Yeah. Uh, well, it's interesting because it, even like watching you talk to him about map gas and whatnot, it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting because um, I've always been kind of worried about how uh, once you start getting into business, you know, how that intersects with how the 
the community essentially works. You know, there's just so much collaboration in the community where people are freely saying, you know, giving advice and sharing back and forth. You know, and it's always really concerned me that we get to a point where now it's um, I'm not going to tell you that, and uh, yeah. because you're my competitor. You know, uh, I'm not going to tell you that because then someone else can go out and make what I'm making and, yeah. it, or whatever. You know, it's it's always kind of a worry. There's right? definitely a transition period, right? So, so something that starts as uh, a nascent community of, of like-minded individuals throwing ideas around, that's one thing. And then somebody's like, hey, I'm going to work on this project, you know. But it, in, invariably, it gets to the point where, um, like, it took me from 2005 to 2013 to say, let's wrap a business model around this. And the, the, the drivers were not that I thought I was going to make a ton of money, but I said, if I'm going to spend all my time, my free time, answering emails, telling people how to do this, where to get things that are safe, I, I need to be compensating, like, I need to make some money at this so I can, like, make it worth my while, right? So there is this now kind of uh, tension, right? And what I think can help solve that is not overlapping products, mm. not competing with it. It's such a niche market that we're literally fighting for every single sale. And if you have somebody then just kind of entering in and competing with you directly on something that's already so niche, like, that's tough. It's really tough. And it... it, it creates um, tension. So, like, Grindhouse is working on these cool North Star stuff. That's awesome. Like, yeah. And the Firefly implant, I don't want to work on that, right? Yeah. So, like, yeah, sure, here's my glass supplier, whatever. But it's that, it's that thing of, like, being collaborative when you know you're shooting yourself in the foot if you're a commercial entity. It's tough. Yeah. It's tough to do. I think we're such a niche market right now that our success as a group hinges on each other. If if you do something amazing or dangerous things do something amazing or you come off something amazing, that helps all of us at this point. Our success kind of reverberates off of each other. And I hope that will last, but realistically I know that as we start growing and becoming profitable business as we all want to be, that might change. But I think, I don't want to speak for the entire community, but I think in my interpersonal communication with everyone individually, I think we're all on the same page that profit's great, but that's not what drives us to do this at all. We do this because it's an amazing thing. It will help people live better lives, be what they want to be, and help them do that. And I don't want to make it sound like some grand thing, because I realize all we're doing at this point is putting magnets in our fingers. Wow. But I, that's the goal. Like, we yeah. want to build to that. And anything that I can do to help someone else get to that point, it's not a zero-sum game. Their success isn't my loss, necessarily. And I would, you know, wish the best to everyone on the stage. I hope everyone succeeds in what they're doing. And to any way that I can help, I will. Yeah. So there's a couple of things I'd like to say about that. Firstly, um, I agree with what Amal said. Like to expand on that, not only are you then competing more, but you're spending a lot of like wasting a lot of time reinventing the wheel. If someone's already done something and you want to, you know, compete with that, and you have to reinvent the wheel to, you know, do what they've already done, it's like wasted research time. If you did something new, then we'd end up with two different implants versus just two of the same implants from different people. Um, secondly, so like, I didn't get into this field to make money. Like. I want to be a cyborg. I want to have a neural interface that I can browse the net and stuff. The only reason I like, made, uh, like, started the company was it for it was because I want to, like, I figure the inflow of money I can use on better research tools. I can, you know, turn that over and say, okay, so you bought this and then I spend the money on a new microscope or something. And that's, that's like my motivation for it is to be able to fund the advanced research that I can't do just with my own income. The idea is that we can eventually one day have a whole research lab of you know, people, engineers and scientists working on something, and then we can really make some significant progress. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Okay, so what is your biggest concern regarding safety for biohackers in general? I think that, um, and we kind of touched on this on other panels, like ethics panels and things, but the openness of the community, allowing, like, like so people come to me, what, how can I get in biohacking? I go to the forum, right? And their mind goes, you know, explodes. But the, the lack of rigor, right, is, is like, the, the dangerous thing would be for somebody to come in and see, everybody's doing this, it's super easy. I'm going to take some glue and stick it on a thing and then jam it in my body. I'm a biohacker. And, and uh, like attracting spotlights to um, irresponsible self-research, right, will, will harm the community. Um, so that's, that's a bit scary. But I, I think that, you know, the, the, the negative side of, like, the negative uh, impact of the community of being business and, like, being in business and like, how that can create tension, it also means that those people are going to be way more responsible because now they're their research and their livelihoods are dependent on, you know, not killing their customers, right? <laughs> like, so there's positives. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I think even with just some of the transponders that I sell, there's certain people, like a couple times in, in the last couple of years, I've like, the, the people email me these questions and in the course of the conversation, uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to sell to you. Like they'll buy it and I'll be like, I'm refunding your money, don't do it. Because I just get the feeling that they would just be completely, you know, whatever. So, um, like, I had a guy saying, could I put it next to my heart? Uh, and I was like, why? Uh, you know, wh what are you doing? So, I mean, this is, and, you know, he's very enthusiastic about it. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sell it to you. Sorry. Yeah. So, just, uh, I think the, the, the openness and the idea of self-experimentation could get somebody to get carried away and then put a bad light on, on the community. Absolutely. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. People doing something irresponsible to themselves and then that looks bad on the community is a big concern. And the other one I think I would have is pseudoscience creeping in a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned it on, on the last panel. Um, there's things like the nootropics and stuff that everyone, a lot of people are making claims that are just not backed up by science. And you don't even have to go too far to see things like that where, you know, is this crystal going to realign your chakras and stuff like that. And biohacking is becoming this marketing buzzword now and a lot of people are, are hinging on that. And if you search biohacking on Instagram, you're going to see a lot of pictures of avocado toast. Like, that's not, mm. I, don't understand, like, that's, I don't understand what's happening there. But we need to be very diligent to keep these kind of things out of the real science that we're actually doing in original research and make sure that everyone knows that if you're going to be in this community and you're going to actually develop things and work towards it, you need to be scientifically literate. You need to use the scientific method and not just feel things because they're right and then use that to market your product. So I suppose I see it as something that has more long-term consequences. Like, okay, so some person can go and implant something really substandard and, you know, get hurt, but it's sort of a one-off thing, and it's usually pretty immediate, like they didn't sterilize it and they got infected. I think what I would be most afraid of is someone designing something that seems fine and then becomes widespread, and then it becomes unsafe. Like, imagine someone designed something with carbon nanotubes and everyone thinks it's safe and it spreads throughout the community and then five years later we find that it causes cancer or something and yeah. suddenly it's a big deal. So I'm not so worried about the individual fuck-ups, I'm worried about something that's sort of long-term. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so uh, how, uh, let's see, what products or endeavors are you, uh, or possible future projects or endeavors are you most excited about? Uh, I would say that, like right now, the focus is on VivoKey and building that out as a platform, and all of the 
like the really annoying thing about it is that the technology's been done for a while. It's now like partnerships and people and policy and like people are way harder to deal with than, than the technology. But uh, um, the, the thing that's interesting and exciting to me is because uh, as a side project, we've been working on an energy storage cell that's, that's um, similar to lithium, simil similar density, but um, safer, right? And the, the, the idea is that it's got to be safe. And that's, um, you know, once we get to the point where we're happy with the design, then a whole other round of testing happens. But once, once we have something like that, then the idea of really expanding powered devices in a way that's, that's safe uh, is, is like the sky's the limit. Right? Like yeah. let's let's work on something really amazing. Um, lithium's great, but you know you can you can design it a circuit board perfectly, but you're not QAing every component that goes on there like to the great degree that a medical device gets QAed. And you know if you have something go out of spec six months after it's implanted, and the battery explodes like a Samsung, like it's, it's yeah. you know not good. I can give you our exact roadmap of what we plan on doing at Grindhouse, and I'm not going to give a time frame on it because I realize that a lot of it is extremely optimistic and depends on a lot of other things going right. Uh, but at the end of this year, I think we're going to be pretty close to having two commercial products out and available for purchase. That would be North Star version 1 and version 2. Uh, we also have the device called Bottlenose, which interacts with an implanted magnet, and that'll be available as well. And we, the next step after that is getting back to the, the first thing we ever did, which was Circadia, which transmits biological data, physiological data from yourself to your phone. So you have a constant log of your body's metrics and what changes that in your, your surroundings. So that's going to be something I think we're going to be hitting hard again next year. After that, we want to get to the nervous system. So that would be sending data, allowing you to control things in your environment from your body, and then switching that around and having your environment, the Internet of Things, send things directly to your nervous system completely passively. You don't need to read or listen or feel anything, you just get the information sent to you. Uh, from there, we want to do organs. I think one of the things that, when people get hear things like, okay, if you live long enough, you might lose a limb in an accident, or you have to get a hip replacement, or one of your organs goes bad, eventually, just by virtue of living long enough, you're going to turn into a cyborg if you, if you can't, <laughs> right? So what we realize is your organs are going to go bad. Your biological organs have a shelf life, and you hope that if you live long enough for your heart to go bad, you hope that you're close enough to a hospital to survive that. Or if you need a heart transplant, you hope that some other poor person dies so that you can get their heart. And that's a horrible system. So I think we should work towards replacing these biological organs with ones that are more reliable before it needs to happen. And then the long-term goal, as I mentioned earlier, is, is the brain. So in the medium term, so. Right now, we all know about the biotherm chips, which have a temperature sensor on them. Uh, but that's sort of a pain because you need a custom reader for it, and the temperature is not that great. It's basically an implanted thermometer. But currently, something that I've got in development uh, does temperature, heart rate, and blood oxygen content. So that's sort of, I don't want to give an exact time because I've done that before, and then people keep bugging me like, is it done? Is it done? But that's something like, I've got the hardware sorted out. I just need to finish up the code and stuff. So that's sort of the more medium term is like more bio, biometric sensors in an implant and then long term like my focus I want to be is like neural interfaces and nerves and that sort of thing so stuff that you can like get notifications say you'll feel an impulse in your nerves when you know you have a new message that type of thing. Excellent. Okay um, well I think really this one was probably covered in the last discussion more than anything but um, I'll just ask for a short version of, you know, how do, how do your products differ from, from medical products? 
<clears throat> well, I mean, uh, if you think about the FDA's actual definition of a medical device, um, the primary one is the treatment diagnosis uh, uh, of disease, right? And uh, does it alter the structure of the body? And does it interact with the body chemically? So, um, you know, no, it doesn't do any of those things. It's, it's totally a non-medical device. I mean, it, it's, it's for personal uh, enhancement and augmentation. So it's, in some ways, it's like body jewelry. Um, in, in other ways, it's, it's, it's totally elective. So, um, you know, it's not a medical necessity to, to have. Um, that may change actually later um, in society, in a society where everybody's enhanced, right? A normal, natural born human is already at a disadvantage because the whole of society is, is already augmented. Um, you might see something like, um, just like, you know, you can get a government cell phone for free uh, because a cell phone is considered a, a utility that is, you know, critical for functioning in modern society. You might see the government implant, right? Like, or set of implants or whatever. So. It's, it's interesting, but as a, as a medical device, a restorative device, no, we're not that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it sounds like you're, it basically been the difference is intent rather than differences in the product? In, in intent, but also application. I mean, in product, um, you could, you can make a bad product and, and hurt people, but why would you do that? So in terms of a medical, uh, you know, when you're talking about materials and device and testing, we're not regulated like we are with the FDA, so the, the case study requirements and all of that are, are not a requirement, but we, we do the same, I mean, beta testing and things like that. Um, so hopefully there's little difference between the rigor that a medical device undergoes and what we do. Now, rigor can be, uh, you know, less so for, like, for example, software changes in an in a implantable device, like Circadia. If there's a software problem and the thing just bricked, eh, okay, bummer, but you're not, like, your heart's not gonna stop, right? Yeah. So, in certain ways, you know, it, it would suck, but you don't have to necessarily apply the same rigor um, and, and testing and all of that for, for every aspect of the device. But certain things you really shouldn't. Uh, you should apply the same rigor, uh, particularly for, like I say, powered devices, okay. things like that. I made the point earlier that it's only biohacking until it becomes mainstream, and I think that's when you see things like this taking place. Like, I'd say anyone with a pacemaker is far more augmented than any of us on this stage are. And uh, there's other implantable contraceptives or other things that people could use that are technology inside the body that are serving a purpose that augment the human capabilities. And I think that's an important thing to realize. And the difference is that the medical devices are used to bring people up to an arbitrary normal. And we, will, we don't care about the arbitrary normal. We just want to be whatever you want to be. If you don't want a sense or you want an additional sense, let's let that be capable of happening. And I think there's a certain weight that may be worthwhile, but may not be, that's given to things like the FDA or to academic universities, where they figure if it comes out of academia or it comes out of a corporate R&D department or it's approved by the FDA, then it's good and it's worthwhile and that's proven to be that. But like you mentioned in the last panel, people get killed by FDA-approved devices all the time. And even if our devices aren't necessarily go through the rigors of FDA approval, we oftentimes use FDA-approved materials already. Uh, we, we try to find those things that meet that criteria, whether we're going to go through that process or not. Uh, I think the big difference is just how you want to use it. Right now, anyone who works with inside the, the human body and cuts it open and does things has to go through medical school. But this, that's the wrong way to look at this. This is a whole new industry. I would love to see people follow a career path that isn't called medicine, that is about 
cutting into the human body and augmenting it, but it's a different terminology, a completely different thing, because they shouldn't be regulated the same way. Yeah, so regulations have like pros and cons. Obviously, having a mandated testing that every implant has to go through before it can be sold or something, that's great in the sense that we know it's going to be safe. Well, it's much more likely to be safe, uh, and you have some assurances about what tests have been done on it. There is downsides, though, that it, may, it has this huge, like, really high bar for entry. So you want to build a new implant, and you don't have, you know, $100,000 to fund the testing, then, sorry, out of luck. With the whole hacker community and spirit, it's like, I'm going to do this in my garage. I'm just someone who wants to, you know, start from scratch. And so there are pros and cons. And I'm not sure that I can say which is better. Like, maybe, in the, and I definitely think that in the future, there will be regulations put in place. I don't know how long that's going to take to happen. But uh, for now, like, we seem to be reasonably self-regulating. So far, we haven't had any major sort of screw-ups. And I think so far, so good. One day, we'll have to deal with regulation, and we'll deal with that when we come to it. Awesome. Now, if people uh, wanted to get a hold of you or purchase your products, uh, where would they, they find, how would they find you? Dangerousthings.com. Excellent. We are Grindhouse Wetware. Uh, we're on all the social medias. And if you want to learn more about this specifically, I'm also the host of the Future Grind podcast, where I talk to a lot of biohackers or futurists in general about what they're working on. So if you're kind of new to this community and really want to learn more, look up Future Grind. And my name is Ryan O'Shea, and I'm accessible on all the social medias as well. Um, yeah, like I have a booth out there. You can come say hi and, you know, <laughs> check out the... <laughs> experimental stuff I'm working on or whatever. I'm also, like, there's my site, Cyberized on me, and I'm on Twitter and stuff, so, you know, on the forums and whatever, so, you know, contact me. I'm pretty approachable. Um, I feel, like, you know, an email or two a day from interested community members who are asking questions and stuff about different things. Excellent. And I wanted to actually uh, throw out one more thing at resources. Uh, I think every one of these gentlemen has done an uh, interview on, um, uh, there's a really great podcast called uh, Dangerous Minds. And I'm pretty sure, Alex, yours, you were interviewed, but it hasn't come out yet? Not yet. It not should yet. be okay. done so, soon. So very soon all three will have done it. I've, I've not been on it. Oh, you haven't been no. on it yet? Oh, I'm sure that'll be remedied soon. <laughs> yeah, okay, so okay. So after uh, Alex. So. But anyways, it's actually pretty good. And uh, you know, I think each of these topics, they kind of have gone, gone or, well, I don't know. I haven't heard your guys. But uh, they generally go into a, a lot of detail on, on the stuff they're doing as well. So it'd be a great thing to check out. Um, now, I think we have about 10 minutes left or so, and I, I just wanted to open up the floor. And does anybody have any questions? Go ahead. I'll have to think about that for a second. Yeah, I don't know if I can come up with a specific one in general, but I would say just, I'd say art and science have been communicating together for a long time, and they're kind of quickly now with technology becoming one and the same, and especially with biohacking, which is such a cross-disciplinary thing, um, where you can't just be a chemist or an engineer or a software developer or a medical doctor and work in this industry. You need to have either, you need to be a renaissance person who has it all, or more likely, you need to communicate with everyone else. So what really motivates me is the people who have tackled those grand challenges before. And you look at the history of amazing scientists, and I think the common quote is, like, you're standing on the, the shoulders of giants. And I think that's exactly what we're doing. Like, so many amazing people have come before who not necessarily were, were biohackers, but set the stage for us to do what we're doing today. And the reason you're seeing this now is because one of the first human barriers that we overcome recently was 
geography. You know, you're from Australia, but we talk all the time on, on the forums and share ideas, and people are in California and Oregon, we're in Pennsylvania, and it's just, we're talking back and forth all the time, and I think that, that that's really what, so the people who built these systems to make that possible are the ones that I really thank for that. Uh, yeah, so I know they say, like, necessity is the mother of innovation, and this is like the opposite of that, right? No one needs the implants we have. It's not necessary. <laughs> but I think it's the same sort of driving force in that you see this really high goal, like, I want to be a cyborg. I want to, you know, be able to do these amazing things. And it's just so far from reality. And then you sort of think, well, what's the closest I can get today? And you take that step and you think, okay, what's the next easiest thing I can do? And you do that and it's just sort of slowly building on previous work and slowly taking the next step. Uh, well, the, for us, working on the VivoKey is a direct uh, result of that. So um, oftentimes people ask about the security of our implantable transponders and they're not designed for security, right? I mean, bottom line. But the, the risk, uh, not, you know, um, factors are very, very narrow because it's personal use, right? The idea is that you're going to have this device, you're going to use it with your home lock and, you know, log into your personal computer. Um, the difference is very clear when you compare it to something that's more generalized, like a contactless payment credit card, for example. So somebody wants to collect a bunch of credit cards, they can just stand around with a reader and beat people when they walk by. That's a random attacker getting data that they know how to use. They don't need to know you or anything. And so the attack vector is very wide. Um, if someone were able to get close enough to read an implant that they probably didn't even know you had in the first place, they would get a number that's really not, there's no context, right? So they don't know how to use that or, or what it's for. But, you know, when we're talking about society at large, adopting this at large scale, you, you need more, more computing power to do cryptography and to actually address security concerns. And so, um, you know, cryptography has been around a long time, but the reality is it's not really used heavily because once you secure your life with cryptography and you lose your token, you are in a world of hurt. So, um, you know, the idea was like, let's, these things are convenience things and they're novelty items and they're, they're, they're cool, but um, let's solve real problems. And uh, so that was the impetus behind developing VivoKey and to be a cryptography solution. Well, with you, what you want to do with your implants, a lot of that, I mean, information security is very important for that. What we're doing at Grindhouse, it's not quite at that point yet. Once we get back to the physiological data, it will be because you definitely want to protect your personal data. Uh, but I mean, as I think was mentioned in the opening keynote of this entire conference, the person who's using the device should own their data and be able to control all of that. Uh, we want to be very hands-off when it comes to that. We don't want to store your data, so we don't want to have the responsibility of securing your data. Uh, but as far as just the protocols of devices communicating back and forth, I really think that's one of the big things that this biohacking industry needs to focus on. I don't know if enough attention has been given to it yet, and I'm glad you asked the question because I think that's a conversation that needs to start. And to be honest, that's not my expertise. It's not a problem that I can solve, but I'd love to work with the communities that could. And I know, you know, the, the group that put on this conference also does an information security conference. So let's go there, let's talk to these people, and let's get these groups communicating with each other to really see what we need to do to make sure that everyone's data is kept safe, safe to the point where privacy isn't a concern when you think about adopting things that could improve your life. We don't want any barriers for entry there. Let's go to DEF CON. Yeah. So, yeah, like, that's an interesting question for sure. So, like, biohacking is not what I do full time. Like, it's just something I do at the weekend. I have a day job. In my day job, I'm like an honest to God hacker. Um, and like, we call ourselves pen testers, security consultants, uh, like ethical stuff. Only hacking companies when they ask us to and they pay us to. But I'm intimately aware of the security challenges 
And I would say it's, well, a lot of the implants that I sell, it's the opposite of that. They are intended to be insecure. They are intended so that you can copy your you know, apartment key or your transit card onto your implant. If they were truly secure, you wouldn't be able to do that. You wouldn't be able to copy their card onto your implant. The whole point of the implant is that the technology is not secure that allows you to use it in these ways. We get emails all the time from people, not necessarily who, we do get ones from people who are already in the medical device industry or medical doctors, but more often than that, I think it's a generational thing, we get people that are in medical school all the time. So I'm really optimistic about what this next generation of, of doctors and designers and engineers in this field, what their relationship's gonna be with this community, because this is something they're starting to, to know about when they're learning, they're going through school, they're kind of growing up with it now, and I think that's really powerful. Uh, so to answer your question, yes, we do have direct communication with people in these fields. A lot of it, they don't publicly come out in support of us because that puts, unfortunately, that sometimes puts their reputation or their jobs on the line. Um, but especially, I think, our into that world would be through cosmetic surgery and plastic surgery. Um, I recently had a phone conversation with a very well-known plastic surgeon in, in Beverly Hills who really wants to start working with the biohacking community and how can these groups work together so that people, right, right now, the body modification community is perfect for us. We're doing subdermal implants. They are experts in their field. Many of them have a background in medical training, but we're quickly gonna get to the point where that's not enough. We need actual medical doctors to help us with these procedures, and we need to start now with that communication. So yeah, it happens, but I'd like it to be more public than private. Well, that, that depends on a lot. Uh, two things, primarily the um, external applications and interfaces, which are a lot of times designed to be proprietary, right, unfortunately. Um, because they, they have different uh, revenue models they want to build on that proprietary, proprietary approach. Um, but in terms of biohacking as a community, I think when we get to the point where we're starting to deal with always-on devices, powered devices, right, They're, and, and leveraging different wireless technologies, I think that the idea of developing a common protocol, um, like Speaks Bluetooth or Speaks Biohacks 1.0, um, that, that is an idea that's been floating around for a while, at least in my brain, to be able to say uh, some sort of protocol that says, hey, I'm a device, I'm in the body area network, I have these resources, I have an LED and a, I have a, so whatever, right, a screen or who knows what. Um, and then other devices that may want to leverage those uh, input outputs, right, might be able to say, hey, I got information, I need to communicate it to the user, send it this way. But that, that's all very, you know, we're, we're not quite there yet, but I think taking that under consideration and saying let's let's like try to co-develop some sort of interactive protocol that doesn't limit or restrict device design, but it just says, hey, if you're gonna make a device, uh, let's try to make it speak this particular language. I think I agree. Yeah, so I know how you feel. Like I take stuff out all the time to make room for the new thing that I'm building and testing. Uh, so as an example, like all the RFID chips, they do one, application at a time, like one ID. And so if you want to have like three buildings, then you need three implants. But one of the chips that I've like designed but haven't started building yet, it'll allow just to store multiple you know, RFID IDs on the same chip and it will just like cycle through them. So you put it up to the thing and wait a second and it will cycle through the like, IDs you pre-programmed. And so that means you could have one chip that does like several different buildings. I want that chip. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much, guys. Uh, um, Great, and if you guys have any other further questions for them, uh, you can come down and, and ask them yourself. Right. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.
<laughs> now, a special thanks to the team at Body Hacks and ISSW for sharing this recording with us. And remember, if you're able to make it out to Austin, Texas for either one of these conventions, please feel free to do so because Body Hacking Con and InfoSec Southwest both are worth the trip, worth the money for the experience for the networking. So our loyal listeners, if you would like to know more about this journey we take weekly, check out the DMP homepage, dangerousminds.io, or go to facebook.com forward slash podcast. Keep in mind, events like these are listed on the DMP Google Calendar. And if you have an event that you would like to have added, please email us about it at info at dangerousminds.io. Now, all of us want to thank you for joining us as we explore further the tech and the people behind it within this fastly growing community of biohacking, grinding, implantable technology, as well as information security today. So please feel free to reach out to us with questions or comments, and perhaps one day we'll talk to you about the work and or projects you're do- exploring and developing. Till next week. Seek the spark. Scientific progression is steamrolling. There's no preventing it going ahead. Now we're intrinsically linked with technology, biology as we 